Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. I'm so excited for you to meet my guest tonight. Her name is Paula, and we've actually been trying to record this story for a a year, maybe even two at this point, but God's timing is always perfect. And he knew that there was an entirely other chapter that he had to write in her life before we did this recording. And so I'm so glad we, we finally get to do this. And ladies at Calvary Mac, you will probably recognize this voice and you hopefully will remember our sweet Paula. We miss her, but for everyone who hasn't met you before, Paula, would you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your life today? Uh, Yeah, hi. My name is Paula. I am married to James. Uh, We currently live in Tennessee. We've been here since, well, we officially moved here in October of 2020. And I guess that's about it. (laughs) Well, I I love that you ended up in Tennessee because y'all know my family's from Tennessee and I can't wait to see you the next time we go out and visit. But you may have noticed listeners right away that, that Paula does not have a Southern accent, uh, but she wasn't, she wasn't born in Tennessee. She's not from Tennessee. She wasn't even born in America. So Paula, why don't you start your story with where you were born? And that's just going to take us on an incredible journey of how you ended up in America and the story that God's been writing for your life. All right. So I was actually born in Arad, Romania. And that is really, really close to the Hungarian border. My dad is technically Romanian, but we did a genetic test and found out he's actually Austrian, most likely. And my mother is Czechoslovakian. And and where she was born was right on the border of Hungary. And actually, my grandparents were born in Hungary, and then they moved the border, and we ended up in Romania. So my um, mom's parents, actually, my dad's parents have some fantastic stories, but I know more about my, my mom's parents than, uh, than about my dad. My grandfather was, uh, you know, drafted into World War II, and they were on their way to the front lines, and the uh, convoy they were in, they were carrying something heavy. I don't remember what it was, but it was something heavy in their truck. Uh, their truck rolled, and they got, they got knocked out of the truck, and nobody was injured except for my grandfather. He ended up with a broken collarbone. So he couldn't go off to the front lines and he had to go back home to recuperate. I don't think anybody survived out of the division or whatever it was. So my grandfather went home to recuperate. Well, he was a pacifist. So he just never went back. He, he deserted. They would come looking for him. And, and one time they came looking for him. He, he hid upstairs in the attic. They would put all the corn husks, like all the corn in the attic one uh, the soldiers came in and he took like a bayonet and he just stabbed everywhere, but he managed to miss my grandfather. And then another time, somebody he knew actually came looking for him along with somebody from the army or you know, for the military. And this person either A, didn't recognize my grandfather, he's not sure, or he pretended not to recognize my grandfather. And they walked up to my grandfather and said, hey, have you seen Paul anywhere? And my grandfather's like, no. <laughs> And then when the guy was like, well, thank you for your help, walked on. And, you know, so my grandfather's never figured out if the guy was just covering for him or actually didn't recognize him. And then after the war, uh, things got really, really unsafe. It was, it was kind of lawless. And my grandmother, 
uh, food was really, really short and she had to go to market to sell food, you know, to get food for the kids. And to get to market, they had to take a boat over a river. And there were um, a lot of women all trying to go to market and one guy on the boat and he couldn't fit everybody. So my grandmother got left behind and she was just really upset. She had little, little kids at home, you know, no way to feed them and no way to sell uh, what she was growing to buy more food. Well, the boat was so overloaded that as they're crossing over, it, uh, it capsized and everybody got thrown out of the boat. And the only person that survived was a really skinny, small woman who floated on a heavier woman who had drowned, but she was floating because she had a lot of petticoats. And this woman grabbed onto her and that's how she survived. And my grandmother who got left behind. You know, so it's like sometimes things look bad, but God means them for good. Then uh, the, the Russians came in and the Russians were really, really thoroughly disliked in Romania much more than the Germans were. So when the uh, Russians came in, they would just go around and just uh, go into houses, rape, steal, you know, do whatever they wanted. So my grandmother um, has several young children and my grandma and grandpa had things that could have been stolen, you know. So what she did is she um, dressed the kids in their dirtiest clothes, let them have like snotty noses, dirty faces, and put them all in the front window of the house to watch the Russians go by. And not a single Russian soldier came in their house. I think they figured that not only was there going to be nothing to steal, the kids might want something from them. So, so she ended up protecting the family that way. So once the Russians came in and communism started getting established, a lot of our family left Romania. My mom's family was Czechoslovakian, and a lot of them went back to Czechoslovakia, which was still communist, but it never got as bad there as it did in Romania. Years later, when things got gone pretty bad, my mom asked, you know, my grandmother, like, you know, why didn't you and dad leave when you had the chance? And my grandma told her that the only people that left were the poor people that had nothing to lose, you know, and, and my grandparents had, you know, a farm and property and a house in town, and they had a lot of stuff. So they didn't leave. Of course, the communists took pretty much everything by the time they were done, so they didn't get to keep it. And that became a lesson to my mother uh, later when mom and dad felt like God was telling them to leave Romania. And it was kind of scary. She's like, well, you know what? When my parents had the opportunity to leave, they don't leave. And so that, that kind of became a lesson to us. So five of us kids were born in Romania. I started school there. I actually went through halfway through third grade. It was a little different there than here. We didn't have ballpoint pens. We didn't really have pencils either that I remember. We had colored pencils. Uh, we had ink ink pens, you know. And so I remember as a little kid, when you start learning, learn to write there, you would have to draw lines to figure out how to work the ink pens so you didn't leave big blots on your paper. And I, I left big blots everywhere. And then um, school was pretty strict. The teacher would go around every day and inspect our fingernails. And if they weren't properly uh, trimmed and cleaned, they'd hit you over your fingers with the ruler. So I got in a habit of biting my nails real quick as soon as I started school and uh, got rid of that habit once I no longer had the threat of getting hit with a ruler every time my nails were too long. The other thing was, if you if you didn't do well on, a, on an assignment or if like if you failed a test, at recess, you'd all get lined up and everybody'd get a beating. And I was a straight A student. I was not, I, I was a major wimp. I was not going to get beaten you know some of the guys were really tough and they didn't care but 
I did. So, so I was either number one or number two in my class the entire time I was, uh, I was in school there. One of the things that was different in Romania and different in America that we take for granted here was we had a quote unquote library at the school where I attended. Uh, it was a public school. And what they would do is they had a stack of books. The entire library was a, like just literally just a stack of books. And they would uh, put it on a desk, the whole stack. And then the whole class would line up every class and you go through and they give you a book. And then next week you turn in that book and they give you another book. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, what they would do is they'd always put the books, you know, in the same order and they line us up in the same order. So I would get the same book every single week and probably every other kid got the same book too but other ones weren't you know going to complain so when I came to America and you could go in library and pick your own books and put pick any book you wanted I think I read for years I loved reading that was so much fun so when we were kids we we had to wear uniforms in school usually they the way it worked is uh, they got them a few sizes too big and you wore them until there was a few sizes too small. We didn't have a lot of clothes. You, you couldn't really buy clothes in the stores. They weren't available. So what you would do is if you can get a hold of some fabric, you take your fabric to a seamstress and she would sew you whatever it is you needed to have sewn. Back then, um, most of the houses didn't have indoor plumbing. Um, most of them had actually just packed dirt. Like, but it was packed really, really well. Like it was packed to the point where you could sweep it. You know, it was packed hard. There was a lot of houses that didn't have electricity. My parents actually built a house. So we had real floors and we had an indoor bathroom and we had electricity. And so we, uh, we kind of had it nicer than um, some other people around us. We lived on about a half an acre of land. We lived in the city and Except for the people, the communists were trying to put everybody into high rises because they could control people better. Um, so except for the people that lived in the high rises, um, all the rest of us lived on probably like a half an acre of land. And on the half acre, you'd have your well for your water, you'd have your outhouse, you'd have your pigs, you'd have your chickens, you'd have your dog, you'd have your garden, you'd have your fruit trees, and you'd have your little yard. And then the next half acre over, the same thing again. And then a few of them, some of the neighbors would have geese. We never had geese, but a lot of neighbors did. Um, some of them would have a cow or a horse or several horses on their land too. And then because everybody lived on such small acreage uh, and there was hardly any cars, they would just let everything, all the animals run around in the street too. So we used to get chased by geese on the way to, to school. I, I didn't like the geese very much. And that's probably how we came down with hepatitis A when I was a kid, you know, the outhouse. And nobody knew about putting a distance between an outhouse and a well back then. So um, clean drinking water was an issue. We didn't realize it at the time. That actually became very apparent later. But so um, my second sister, Yarmila, number two, was actually born in uh, Nudlock, where my mom came from. And the reason for that was mom came you now hepatitis A while she was pregnant with my sister and they wanted her to have an abortion and, and she didn't want to have an abortion. So they wouldn't let her have the baby in the hospital. So she went off to uh, the town, a small town where my grandparents lived and had a midwife and my sister got to go home in a, you know, in a carriage because they didn't have a car. And, uh, so yes, so she got born in the block. Food was a big issue and weight was a big issue. 
there was almost no food to be purchased in the stores. They used to have milk, but they would take everything out of it. By the time they were done, it was like a kind of like a green liquid. It was disgusting, actually. And then there started to be a lot of shortages. Um, so the, the milk was pretty much undrinkable. So what my mom would do is she would send my sister and I to get milk. So mom and dad would send us out after it got dark and we'd go get the milk. And this way, you know, if we got stopped by the authorities or something, what were they going to do to two little girls? They probably weren't even going to check us. And then we'd get good milk. And, and then since we didn't have refrigeration, the next day it would be yogurt. The food was kind of limited. It was probably, it was really good, actually. Like we ate super healthy, but very limited. So a lot of the Romanians, most of the Romanians would only have one or two kids because it was, it was really, really hard to feed everybody. You know, there was, there was food shortages. And mom and dad were Christians and they wanted a big family. So mom always worried about us uh, being short or underfed because, you know, there's so many of us. But it's, it's also interesting, like um, I, I've gone back to Romania and, and people that, you know, stayed behind, you know, even though they only had one or two kids and they could feed them, um, they didn't get enough calcium. And it's, uh, it was pretty common to see even like young teenage girls missing teeth, you know. Or especially if they, once they got pregnant, like during pregnancy, they would just lose their teeth. So toward the end, um, there started to be shortages of things. And like one night, my mom had a dream that God told her, get up and, and go to store, go to store now. So she went to store and found out, oh, they just got a shipment of sugar. So she got sugar. She's on her way home and all the neighbors are like, oh my goodness, you got sugar. And they ran to the store and but then it was gone. So it's, it got to the point where it was like, we we're kind of depending on God to just just to get, you know, our food. In the late 70s sometime, clothes became a big issue because, you know, we're five kids and you're taking stuff to seamstresses. If you can get material at all, it was getting harder to, to get clothes for us. So mom and dad heard that in Czechoslovakia, for some reason, there was a shortage of uh, sausage casings. Like, so because my mom had relatives in Czechoslovakia, they applied for permission to, to go visit and they got permission, but it was illegal to bring sausage casings out of the out of Romania so mom and dad prayed about it anyway and they packed up sausage casings and like brown paper and just tied them up and just their whole suitcase was just full of little bundles you know of sausage casings that they were going to sell in Czechoslovakia in exchange for getting clothes and stuff when they went to a border the border patrols would just you know they'd go through everything and they literally like just tore apart their suitcase trying to make sure they didn't have anything illegal in their suitcase and they kept moving those little packages around, looking underneath them and looking around them, trying to make sure there's nothing illegal. But they never opened up any of the packages. So mom and dad were able to sell those casings and buy clothes for us, which was a good thing because we needed those to come to America. It is so amazing to hear how you and your family really had to depend on God for the basics. And again, I know there are a lot of listeners that have had to depend on God at different points in their life, but not, not as many listeners maybe have had to depend on him for survival, like for food and clothes. And you had mentioned what it was like when communism came in. And you've also mentioned that you're living in a Christian family. And for anybody who's had any kind of history lesson, those two aren't exactly um, friendly in history. And so what 
was it like being this Christian family in the midst of a communist government? What what was that like for you individually and for your family? So we we attended a, a rather large church for it being a communist country. We uh, my dad's cousin was the pastor, and we found out after communism collapsed that the reason they were able to keep the church open was he would just bribe the authorities. He would toe the line and he bribed them and they let him keep the church open. We didn't know that at that time. And then our non Christian family members that had jobs had to be careful socializing with us because their jobs could be in jeopardy. What the the church would do to evangelize is the only time anybody was allowed to go to church was uh, funerals and weddings. The communists were okay with people going to church if it was a funeral or wedding. So the Romanian weddings, this was a typical Romanian wedding, is, you know, the bride would get all dressed up and whatever outfit she managed to get, you know, usually a white outfit, but sometimes homemade. And they sit them up on the platform and then they preach a three hour sermon (laughs) and the salvation message. And then they, then they don't have a big dinner and hang out and have fun, you know, the rest of the night, but they do the salvation message when they can get people to church because you weren't allowed to, to talk to anybody really. So my dad um, didn't do a good job keeping his mouth shut at work. And his boss, who was actually a really nice guy, uh, just paid him. He said, listen, I will pay you every month extra, like a bonus, if you just stay quiet during the meetings, um, because he, he would just say smart comments and, and uh, usually anti-communist comments, and they didn't like it. Um, they, um, they were rather corrupt. They would uh, give drunks time. You know, somebody was an alcoholic and had a hangover. They, they could get time off work. But if you're truly sick, my mom had a coworker who went to a doctor and said, hey, I've had a really bad headache for two days. And the doctor said, well, I've got a headache to go back to work. Well, he died. He must have had a, a stroke or a brain bleed. Most of Christians went into blue collar work. You know, they're, they're limited from being able to, you know, to, to go to be teachers. And actually, one of my dad's cousins who managed to get educated in England we can't prove it, but he died of cancer when he was really young. And after communism collapsed, a party member told his family that the reason he got cancer was that they irradiated him. Like, I don't know if there's anything even written about this or known, but we've known of several people that we had a friend that came to America. It was actually at OHSU, and they kept getting just one weird cancer after another. And, and, and he had been a teacher in Romania. They didn't like Christian teachers. And um, this friend of my parents was getting treated at OHSU. And, and they said, the only time we've ever seen these kind of cancers is high dose radiation. He's like, I was a school teacher. And then he remembered like uh, he'd get called into the police station and, and there are times they, they make him, you know, they tell him to write out his confession or whatever. And then he remembered there'd be times he'd fall asleep and he'd wake up and he wouldn't have written down a thing. And they go, oh, you could go home now, which is kind of strange. And then he emigrated to the U.S. before he ever got cancer. So he got treated. And he actually lived to be pretty old here in America. So, you know, Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord and have been called according to his purpose. And, and then when we emigrated to America, the fact that my parents were not able to get a college education actually worked to our advantage. So that was, that was pretty interesting. In the late 70s, all of a sudden, they're just like got 
all of a sudden just people just started leaving Romania. It, it was, uh, I'm not quite sure what triggered it. I was a kid, almost all Christians and some that had uh, relatives in the U.S., but almost all of them were Christians. And I actually had an uncle who came to America with us who was not a Christian, but he said, when so many Christians leave, it kind of makes me nervous. And he came <laughs> and he's still here. So I had an uncle who had left Romania. He had uh, run, uh, run the border in 1969. He had rolled a government truck. And because he destroyed government property, he was, they were going to put him in, in prison. So rather than go to prison, he ran the border and ended up in the United States. Well, his mail was censored. So his family knew he was in the States, but really couldn't correspond with him. And then right around the time my parents decided that, you know, they felt like God was really telling them to leave Romania, a letter of my uncle's got through to them. He did something where somehow it got through the censors. And once we got that letter, my parents were able to correspond with him, get his address, you know, find out where he was at. And he was living in New Jersey and get him to sponsor us. So once we decided we were going to leave, uh, my dad was no longer allowed to work. We were considered traitors. My uh, parents took us out of school. People would tell us we're going to starve to death. Nobody, nobody knew anything about America. We were really, really sheltered. And they, they kept a really tight lid on information. So nobody really knew anything. We'd heard some things. Like one of the things we heard was that they park cars on top of buildings. That's probably parking garages. But nobody could figure out how in the world that could work. Dismissed it. That, that can't be possibly true. You know? And uh, we had to wait about eight months before they actually uh, agreed to let us leave. We, we didn't know if we were going to get to go. It was really haphazard. You know, they let one family go, not let another family go. Later on, we realized, well, you know, if you didn't pray, you weren't going. You know, you, you really need to pray about this. And then the other thing was the communists needed that time to look and see if you had a nice house. Because if you had a nice house, they could put one of their party members in your nice house because their party members probably living in a floor, you know, house with a dirt floor and no electricity, you know. And it's a win-win. They get rid of a Christian family and their party member gets a nice house. Right before uh, we were going to leave, dad got called in for his kind of like accident interview, you know. And they weren't taking kindly to the fact that we want to leave at all, because according to them, you know, we're leaving mother Romania and how dare you, even though we're Christians, they weren't getting necessarily getting treated very well, but you know, you sure want to leave. And so they called that in for his interview and dad just kept praying like, oh God, what, what do I say? What do I say? Cause there's no way there's, this is a no win situation. The verse in Matthew 10, 19, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. So dad prayed and, and he went in for his interview and the guy's like, why are you trying to leave Romania? And dad goes, well, sir, I don't know what to do. I've got five kids and my wife's brother is in America and has been there since 1969. And she really, really wants to see him. Now, what am I supposed to do? Let her and the kids go and stay. What should I do? And the guy's like, of course you got to go with her. You got five kids. Stamp, 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 you know? <laughs> so God gave him wisdom. So we left in the spring of uh, 1979 and a whole bunch of people uh, came to the train station to see us off. Most of them were just crying their eyes out. You know, they knew they weren't going to see us again for a long time. I was nine years old. I didn't have a clue. I was just, I was going on an adventure, you know, 
and didn't really realize that once uh, we left, you know, that that really was a separation for life. We went to Italy, flew to Italy. Oh, goodness, being on a plane. <laughs> uh, I've never been on a plane before. And uh, we ended up in Italy for five and a half weeks in, the, in uh, Rome. And oh, my goodness, my mother discovered peanuts. You know, she'd been trying to fatten us up our entire lives and peanuts. <laughs> she fed us so many peanuts. I still can't eat peanuts. I can eat peanut butter if you disguise it in something. But <laughs> most of us that were older, my dad and the kids, still can't eat peanuts. My mother, well, she was, she was pregnant. She was actually three months pregnant and had hit her pregnancy, you know, because that would have started a new round of paperwork. So she probably needed the protein, but the rest of us, oh my goodness, we were so sick of peanuts. And then my dad got a, a job on a watermelon farm while we lived there, uh, picking watermelons. So what I remember, well, I remember a lot about Italy, but mostly I remember watermelon and peanuts, eating watermelon and peanuts. So we landed in uh, the U.S. on July 17, 1979. My parents had $200 and five suitcases and five kids. We ended up in New Jersey. And within a short time, um, something happened with gas prices. And my uncle drove a truck and he lost his job. And he ended up moving, um, I think, to Texas and left us high and dry in New Jersey without speaking any English. We initially ended up in this little, really rundown kind of, it was an old vacation place that had been turning to housing, like housing complexes, infested with cockroaches. A lot of, you know, people that didn't have jobs, they stay up late at night drinking. Anyway, my, my parents just cried and cried, like, how in the world, what in the world did we do? And then some lady at church, uh, an American lady, decided, uh, you know, she felt like God had told her and it was her duty to help us buy a house. And thank God she did it. We would have never gotten a house. And she helped us buy an old farmhouse on the edge of this little town, probably about 6,000 people. We lived there for 20 years and tried to leave the entire 20 years because we got stuck in New, in New Jersey without a Romanian community. And we didn't speak English and my parents didn't speak English. So this, this was rather uh, distressing, you know? So my entire childhood, every single summer, we were going to sell our house and, uh, and moved to be in a Romanian community. And every single year I'd be back at school and the kids would be like, oh, they're going to move. Oh yeah. So did I, but we didn't realize what a blessing that was because we actually were in a really, really good school district. And we didn't know it. So when I was um, in eighth grade, um, my parents had decided that they wanted their kids to go to college, including the girls, which wasn't common in the Romanian culture. Uh, so um, in eighth grade, you know, we're looking at the high school in, in the little town we're in. And the guidance counselor, you know, convinced my mom that I need to go to the vocational technical school in the county. We figured out later that's where they sent all the kids that weren't college material. So I spent a year, my freshman year in Votech, and I had a blast and it was fun and I had no homework. And mom was a little concerned, but you know, we didn't know any better. And uh, at the end of the year, God worked things out. He kind of slammed the door on me. I got some of the boys mad at me. I, I did something and they got mad at me and, and they said, we're going to beat you up the last day of school. I was like, oh my goodness, you know, I wasn't very big, you know, and I wasn't going to be able to hold my own. 
my grades are really good. So I just skipped the last day of school. And I was like, well, I can't go back. They're going to beat me up the first day of school. I go back. So I'm like, mom, I better go to the public school in our town. I better just not go back to Votech. And I went from being a straight A student without trying at the Votech school to barely making C's at the regular high school, which was a lot harder. But um, I, I slowly improved. And, um, you know, mom and dad are like, you know, we want you to go to college. And I didn't quite understand what college was. Uh, I, I knew you know, was more schooling, but there wasn't any in our town. And this is before the internet. Uh, Toward the end of high school, they said, hey, um, they passed out a packet. They said, this is for scholarships and, and, you know, different things like that. You know, fill out this packet. So it was a real thick packet. And I filled out the whole thing, handed it back in. And then one of my friends said, hey, I'm going to apply to go to this college in a town about an hour away. And she's like, you want to ride with me? I'm like, sure. I'm like, yay, I found out where the college is. You know? So I, I, I hitched a ride with her. And then my mom was going to pick me up. And so at that point, I wasn't sure what I was going to go to college for, because I wasn't quite sure about that either. But I had been working as a nurse's aide on the weekends in a nursing home near our house, you know, just to make extra money. And they had nurses. And I, I liked old people. I, I really liked people. So I figured... I'll, I'll, I know you have to go to college to be a nurse. I'll be a nurse. So, so I went and I went for the nursing program and I applied. And after I applied for that, my mom was going to pick me up and I ended up sitting in front of a building till mom found me. Well, by the time she found me, it was really late and there was an award ceremony at the high school. And we went directly from college to this award ceremony and we got in late. So I was really embarrassed and we're sitting way in the back. And they give, you know, the best athlete, the top student, you know, all these awards. And, and then they got, and they would just show you what the, the awards or the scholarships were for. And then we got down to like last three and they, they called my name. I walked up front. The next award was mine. They, I walked up front. They called me again. I walked up front. They said, oh, we have several more things that didn't make it on the program. And they were all mine. I just kept walking up front, walking up front. So by the time I was done, I ended up getting my tuition paid over twice in addition with hundreds of dollars for books and everything else. I think God wanted me to go to college because he sure provided for me. So off to nursing school, I went without a clue. It was a two-year program, except nobody did it in two years, but nobody told me that. So I actually did do it in two years. One of the nursing instructors, her name was Miss Griffith. And Miss Griffith had, a, she was a former military. I can't remember which branch of the military, but she was really, really tough. And everybody was uh, terrified to get into her clinical ro rotation in the hospitals, including me. And my fourth semester, I ended up getting Miss Griffith. And I did everything I could to try to get out of her rotation. And she decided she actually wanted me in her class. And I don't know why, but she decided because what they would do is each instructor would have probably like 12, nah, less than that, maybe eight or 10 students that were theirs that they would manage in the hospitals. And um, the previous semester, Mrs. Griffith had failed her entire group because she didn't like them, not because they were failing academically. She just decided they weren't cut out for the job. So, oh my goodness, I went home and I cried and I cried. I was crying every day on the way home from school anyway, like, oh my goodness, God, I can't do this, I can't do this. Anyway, you know, I just cried and cried. I'm like, I'm going to fail. And, and then, you know, God gave me peace and Miss Griffith ended up liking me and I ended up liking her and, and it ended up being a great semester and I graduated. So um, I went to apply for a job and the manager where I applied said, well, who are your instructors? I mentioned Miss Griffith and she said, oh, 
You know, Miss Griffith, how did that go? I said, oh, she's great. She's a great instructor. Instructor, We got along great. I got hired on the spot. So then I started working as a nurse, um, registered nurse, just a few months after I turned 20. And I looked really, really young and I was really inexperienced. Uh, same thing. I, I would go home from work and cry and cry, scared I was going to kill somebody. The nurses on day shift and night and uh, evenings were kind of cliquish. They were probably in their mid to late 20s. And they, um, I don't know if you've ever heard the term uh, nurses eat their young. Um, there's a lot of experienced nurses that are not nice to new nurses. And so I ended up going on to night shift. And the night shift nurses ended up being older mothers who had to work night shift. Most of them were Catholic. And, and they were just wonderful. They were nice to me and they treated me well. And I got stuck on night shift. <laughs> With absolutely no social life, because when you're 20 and you're working five nights a week, there is no social life. So after a few years of that, I decided I wanted to get out of med surge. I wanted to go into something specialized and I want to get off night shift. So I, I applied for jobs like for years trying to get off night shift and just couldn't. And and looking back, I know I wasn't mature enough and I was in such a protected environment because, you know, all these uh, older women were just, they, they looked out for me, you know, and finally, after years and years of this, I'm like, okay, God, okay, obviously you do not want me to get off my shift. Okay, fine, fine. I'll deal with it. So what I did is I cut back to four nights a week instead of five. And I worked for a really big hospital system. So I started taking lots of classes you know, just any class they offered just to, you know, I, I, I just love nursing. I loved uh, people. I love the human body. And I would just take random classes. And then um, instead of complaining about having to work night shift, I'd stop and get myself a nice breakfast on my way home. In the winter, I'd keep ice skates in my car and I'd go ice skating on a pond before I went to sleep, you know, just to get out in the fresh air and, and, and just start dealing with it better, you know, instead of just fighting it and fighting it. And I realized that a lot of times in my life, it's, it's like, God gets me stuck and I don't like it. I'm stuck again now, but, but I don't like it. But then looking back, it was the right, it was the right thing, you know, for the time. Um, I couldn't get in any trouble. I couldn't, I, I just worked. And I ended up in ICU, but still on nights, but only three nights a week. So I had a little more free time to go out and have fun. And I loved, I loved the intensive care. Did that for three years. And then it started getting to the point where I just could not sleep during the day. So I applied uh, for a job in the emergency room that was 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. And in the same hospital system where I worked. And I got that job and I switched to ER. And that job was awful. It was off nights, but they ran us so hard that you basically hit the ground running and you didn't stop. You didn't get a break to eat or drink, so you didn't have to use the bathroom. And driving home, my legs would just cramp from being dehydrated and just being on my feet for 12 hours without stopping. By this point, uh, there were nine kids. Mom and dad were actually aiming for 10, but they didn't make it. After nine, she couldn't have any more. My uh, brother, who was number seven, died in an accident. And it was very, very devastating. And I started having trouble functioning at work. <laughs> this job was so crazy. We'd have um, kids come in, you know, that had drowned or accidents. We'd literally give their families like 10 minutes 
And then we'd have to whisk off the bodies because we needed the room. You know, there was not, no support for the families. And it was bad enough that we wouldn't even take the bodies down to the morgue. We'd stick them in the storage room um, mm. because there wasn't any time. And, and then at the end of the night, you'd have to, um, you'd rotate. Hey, it's your turn to go wrap up the bodies and take them down to the morgue. Well, after my brother died, I just couldn't do it. I like, I just mentally could not do that. I started realizing um, I just couldn't deal with young kids coming in, you know, with car accidents, drownings, you know, different accidents. I just emotionally couldn't deal with that anymore. Before then I could, I, I could do CPR, you know, I, I didn't like it, but I could deal with it. After that, I couldn't deal with it. And the, the job, it was so crazy. Like people would die in, in the waiting room. The wait was about a six hour wait. And I know that's normal now with COVID, but you know, back then it was, it was pretty bad. You know, we'd have people, you know, drop dead in the waiting room and then they drop dead going to CAT scan because they wait as long to get a CAT scan. Yeah, there, there's, I could tell you horror stories about this job. So eventually I was like, you know what, if I stay here, I'm going to lose my license. One time this lady came in, she was a cancer survivor and uh, we did an EKG on her. She was having chest pain. And on the EKG, there's um, a, a T wave. And when they're having a massive heart attack, it, it gets really elevated. We used to call them the tombstones, you know. If you got an elevated T wave, you are having a massive heart attack and you're going to die unless somebody intervenes. And I went to the doctor. I said, she's having a heart attack. And the doctor goes, no, no, she's got cancer. Like she was so frazzled and so busy. She just wasn't paying attention. Like, no, no, she's having a heart attack. And she just would not like focus, wouldn't pay attention to me. And I actually had her sign the EKG. She didn't even look at it. She just signed it. And I, and I kept trying to get somebody's attention. Nobody would pay attention to me. And the lady died. The hospital got sued. The doctor got sued. I didn't get sued. I, I had enough documentation um, that I didn't get sued. But I was like, I, I can't stay here. I can't stay here. So what do I do? So my brother had died. I had all these memories, you know, that were making life really difficult. My job was impossible. Uh, my dating life was going nowhere. There was one guy I liked and he wasn't willing to commit and nobody else even available. So I decided to become a traveling nurse. So Paula, I have to just pause here for a moment because... You have just described a, a lot of trauma that b- between your career and the grief of losing your brother, not to mention just everything you had gone through as a child and, and being a religious refugee and moving to a whole new country. And there's really a lot that, that you had been through. And at this point in your story, as you're watching people die all around you and, and really dealing with a lot of situations that are just so unfair. And I think a lot of people in that position would be going, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you allowing this? So I was curious at this point in your, in your faith walk, what your relationship was with God and how did any of this shake, shake you or strengthen you? Or where were you at at this point? Um, so after my brother died, I don't know, I just, you just don't think anything like that will ever happen to you. And you don't think a loving God would ever allow something like that. You're, you're kind of afraid of God after that, you know, you go like, this is a loving God that will allow a 19 year old to die, you know. But over time, you know, it took a while, but I realized that. It wasn't hard for my brother. He went, when I was suffering, he went really fast. It was just hard for us. And the same thing, every time I go through something hard, 
I never see the good in it till later. I, I, I realize now that had my brother not died when he did, you know, our lives would have taken really, really different turns. And I really came, came to the realization and, you know, the conviction that our days are planned out by God. And when the right time comes and it's your time and that's how, how long is, you know, life was supposed to be. And, and it's okay. It's okay. Uh, God, God kept us through it. God kept us through it. And there's no other way. And, and for, for many years, every time I pray, I tell God, you know, like, Hey, you know, my brother this, or mm-hmm. you know, let him know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I would, I would talk to him that way. Yeah. We were, we're all really close as a family. I think, um, not being able to, um, being the Romanian culture, not really being part of the American culture, you know, until we were older, we kind of had to rely on each other. So we, we were really close. So it was hard. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you know what? It's, it's not just about this life. And right. whether you die at 19 or you die at 99, it matters how you live and eternity matters. That's the truth of it. That is so well said. And I, I really hope every every lady listening can find some peace and comfort in that. Paula, we have so much more to your story. We, we still have to get you to Oregon and then get you to Tennessee. And, and there's a lot that happens in, in those years. We still, we still have to meet your husband in your story, but we're going to pause here and we're going to pick this up again for a part two uh, for our next episode. But before we close, Paula, would you be willing to, pray for the listeners right now, uh, maybe especially those who have gone through a, a trauma or a grief and kind of had that really, that really hard time with, with God going, you're a loving God, but why is this happening? But I trust you. And I know you'll still get me through it. Dear Lord, um, there's so many people out there hurting, honestly, um, we, we live in a fallen world. So in some way or another, Everybody gets some hurt. Lord, I pray for anybody that's listening to this, to this recording and hopefully your light will shine through and, and uh, you can use it to help them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Paula. And thank you for being willing to do a second part with us. So ladies, thank you for tuning in to this episode. And of course, we hope you come back for our next episode, which will be the rest of Paula's story and that you are just blessed and encouraged in the meantime by by this first part. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you next time. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.